Welcome to Cloud Control, a podcast dedicated to everything cloud ops. On today's episode, we're joined by Bill Mulligan, a significant contributor when it comes to cloud native technology. Bill has a strong background in building and growing open source communities, and he has a lot to share with us. Previously, at the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, Bill devoted his efforts to not only guide students towards a career in cloud native technology, but also construct local communities by Kubernetes Community Days. Currently, Bill is lending his skills to the EBPF and Cilium open source projects, while also working to build communities at Isovalent. Isovalent is a firm committed to enhancing Linux networking and securing containerized workloads using eBPF. Let's welcome Bill Mulligan and look forward to gaining his insights from his experience in cloud computing and building open source communities on this episode of Cloud Control. So eBPF, it's making it's making some ways in waves in observability and what we how we think of observability. How is it different and what are the use cases? And then kind of walk us through who needs it and who should wait to implement it because it is so it is kind of a new thing. Yeah. So eBPF is a way to programmatically extend the functionality of the Linux kernel. So in the cloud native world, we've kind of moved away from this model where you kind of have a single application running on a single machine where suddenly you have multiple different applications uh, sitting in containers. Uh, all working on top of like one shared kernel. And the neat thing about that is that everything that the applications are doing is going through that kernel. So if you can change the behavior of the kernel and what it's able to do, and you're able to do a lot of interesting things in the cloud native world. And that's what eBPF really enables for us, um, is it allows you to see everything that's happening in everything that you're doing, and it allows you to modify the behavior. Um, so eBPF is kind of like a, a sandbox technology that allows you to run uh, specific programs on events that are happening. And so usually these are syscalls that are happening um, uh, within the kernel context and you're able to modify what's happening. Um, and that's a pretty powerful technology. Um, uh, Brandon Gregg's uh, famous quote about this is, uh, eBPF is superpowers for the Linux kernel. How did it come around? Like, I realize containers and being able to see at that level is something that we've strived for with virtual as virtualization took off, right? Being able to manipulate what the what the actual hardware does. How did is that how it kind of came about? What was the what was the genesis of it, and what's what what what's the future of it as we as it kind of grows and in it in its adoption? Yeah, definitely. So. What most people don't uh, realize is eBPF uh, is actually a quite old technology, like almost dec decades old at this point. Um, it originally had its origins in the Berkeley packet filter, so BPF. In I think the original paper came out in 1992, uh, so we're looking at almost 30-year-old technology. Um, it was sitting around the kernel, you know, kind of like being developed, and it didn't really start to change into what we now know as eBPF until around 2014 when um, Alexi and Daniel um, were looking for ways to essentially mod modify the behavior of the kernel and make it more programmable. And the way that they did this was by extending the Berkeley packet filter. And so that's how we get eBPF. Um, we don't really use the acronym anymore um, because it doesn't, eBPF isn't just related to networking anymore. It covers so many more use cases across observability, security, tracing, um, metrics, um, all types of different use cases. And so what the original vision was is to kind of like make the kernel programmable. And they've kind of 
got it into the kernel. Um, you know, it, kernel is a extremely widely deployed technology, so you can't make really fast breaking changes. You have to do things kind of incrementally. And so what they did is kind of backdoor it <laughs> through the Berkeley through the Berkeley packet filter and kind of started adding more things into that to get to what they actually wanted to have um, in terms of eBPF. And that's kind of where we've got to today. And then kind of looking forward to the future, um, I think you're really going to see a lot of the innovation happening in the kernel um, happening in eBPF first, because it's kind of this experimental playground and sandbox where you can modify a lot of behaviors and in a very safe way, because it's kind of a, a sandbox environment and things have to be verified before they're run within the kernel. And then as things are kind of proven out in eBPF, I, I think you'll see some of that moving back into the kernel, but it allows people to modify the kernel behavior to fit their exact use cases, um, their needs, um, without having to convince the whole kernel community that this should be deployed on every single kernel everywhere in the world. That sounds, that, that's really interesting because I can be, I, I can bet that it makes a big difference in, in not only development, but in the cloud environments where you need to be able to see what's going on as you're developing upstream and in real time. And so that's kind of fascinating. And it's something that I kind of knew about because I've worked on open source IDS projects before and kind of played around with uh, some stuff that bolted into Snort and used the packet filter a lot, but this kind of gives it a whole nother level of observability and that's cool. Um, from a security standpoint, what are the benefits from a security standpoint when it comes to being able, does it allow you to be more proactive with your defenses because you can see what's going on before it hits the container? Kind of walk us through the security implications. Yeah, so there's kind of like two parts to the security implica implications that I want to talk about. And so the first one is about the eBPF programs themselves. Um, I think this is sometimes where some people get concerned, like, why am I just adding new code into the kernel if there's like like problems with it? Um, and so the first thing is that eBPF programs have to be um, like loaded by uh, root users. If somebody already has root on your machine, um, well, then you're <laughs> probably... <laughs> hopefully know who that is or you're in trouble. Um, and kind of the second part is all the eBPF programs that are loaded are um, go through the verifier, which kind of ensures that the rote program runs to completion, that it won't crash the kernel, um, it won't uh, like mod modify memory it's not supposed to. And so that kind of ensures kind of the, the security and safety of the kernel itself. So there's, a, I would say, like a lot of checks and balances built into kind of eBPF itself to make sure that it's secure as kind of like a, a way to modify the kernel. Um, the second part of that question, what does it provide to uh, the people that are trying to defend against malicious actors? I think we're just scratching on the surface of that right now. Um, just recently, uh, I know the folks at Google are upstreaming a lot of the stuff they're doing around uh, 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 Linux security modules uh, or LSM. Um, and that's getting added in right now. So adding some of those um, things into eBPF. And then we're also seeing other projects come out like Falco, like Tetragon, that are kind of adding this, I guess, security observability. Because as I was talking about before, kind of everything that's happening on a machine has to go through the kernel. So eBPF has complete visibility. There's not something you can kind of be running outside of the um, like the, the view of the kernel. And so you have complete visibility. And you can't really uh, escape that, which makes it much more difficult for malicious actors to kind of hide things away in your infrastructure, which is quite a powerful technology. That's awesome. 
How does Cilium come into play? I know that you contribute, you, you work closely with the Cilium project. Kind of walk us through what that is and how it fits into eBPF and then how you got involved and what keeps you going in it. Yeah. So <laughs> eBPF is the foundation for everything that the Cilium project does. So Cilium, Hubble, Tetragon, Packet, where are you? eBPF Go, those are all built around tech, um, eBPF mm. as the core technology. I think that's kind of what is makes Cilium most exciting for me as a project is that it's kind of built from the ground up with eBPF in mind rather than trying to you know, kind of bolt it on later as a new way of doing things. And so if you kind of build something from the ground up with this kind of the transformational technology in mind, then it allows you to uh, think about things a, a, a lot differently. Um, so Cilium originally began as just a way to provide container networking, right? So as we were kind of going through this like cloud and cloud native transition, um, containers were all the new things. It's how do we provide networking to containers? And so it's just providing like a flat layer three, layer four network um, to containers. And kind of as we've seen kind of like the whole like cloud native ecosystem grow, I know everybody likes to joke about like the, the CNCF landscape and how massive that's become. We've really seen kind of the use cases and where people are using Cilium kind of grow alongside that. So expanded from just providing like container networking to providing additional things like multi-cluster networking, um, providing observability uh, through Hubble uh, in this new like cloud native world where things are more dynamic, things are, are moving much more quickly. Um, also getting traffic into and out of clusters so doing things like ingress and load balancing, and then having things like an egress gateway to get it um, that, that back to the outside. And then uh, the newest project under the Cilium umbrella is Tetragon, which is providing security observability. So as I was saying before, kind of like pulling in all that different like observability data that you can get through the kernel, figuring out what's not supposed to be there and kind of preventing malicious actors in your uh, infrastructure. That's, that's a lot of stuff in wrapped into <laughs> one big project. And that's kind of cool to watch. What are some of the use cases where you've seen that have been the most interesting to you with the Cilium project? Like, I'm sure that you get a lot of visibility into how people are using it and the stats and whatnot. What are some of the cool use cases that you've seen that that, that made you scratch your head and go, "I didn't know, I didn't even think to do that." Yeah, I think there's a lot of amazing ones. Um, I think it's really cool to see all the different companies and technologies that Cilium is powering right now. Um, I think. One of the coolest things for me that really like kind of said like this is going to be kind of like the the clear winner in the space is when Cilium became the default like um, CNI so container networking interface across all of the major cloud providers um, managed Kubernetes services and mm. so I, I think the most interesting thing for me there is a lot of people are using Cilium right now without even knowing it and you know like unless something's going wrong with your network you might not actually be thinking about it and so a lot of people are leveraging without even knowing it. Um, I, I think that's super cool. It's kind of like and another funny like uh, side story about that is actually you probably are using eBPF right now because since 2017, every single packet going into um, Facebook or Meta Data Center has been processed by eBPF and every single Android device on the planet is also running eBPF, right? And so I, I think that's one of the cool things about these foundational technologies is they're like so pervasive that like you, they they a little bit disappear beneath the surface unless you're actually working in that platform layer. And I really see like Cilium as this foundational platform technology that's providing connectivity um, wherever we need to go. 
And maybe it might not be the top of mind for everybody, but it's really powerful because it provides that consistent experience that's almost transparent to end users. And I I think that's what's really exciting about it to me. You know, I I could go through the list of all the different companies and customers that are using Cilium, but I I think like the, the really powerful part is it's really becoming this transparent, like networking, observability, and security layer that's providing you this the cloud native experience wherever you need to go. And that's what's really exciting about the project for me. And that's really cool because I had no idea that it, eBPF processed that much data, like with Facebook and every Android device. I think that's really fascinating that you've made this open source project and got it to scale to the point where it's adopted like that. And the fact that it's running on all these managed platforms, right? It, it, it's what is powering the backbone of this container adoption that everybody's moving to. And you bring up observability and it's, we all know it's important to know what's going on, but it's becoming more and more of a big buzzword. Um, what are the benefits of a good observability platform and what are some of the risks that somebody should watch out for? Like we know the big names when it comes to observability, but observability as a concept, what are some of the pitfalls that you can get into when it comes into implementing observability if it's something new to you? Yeah. So I think there's a couple different pieces to this question. Um, and so I, I think the big first one that I'll tackle is like, why would you be interested in observability? Um, and usually you aren't <laughs> until something goes wrong. And I, I think my my favorite quote from this is uh, actually from one of the case studies with one of the users of Cilium. And he said, like, one of the reasons that I chose Cilium is because it's Hubble, um, which is the kind of like network observability aspect of the Cilium project. And he said, when I could show my CEO that with Hubble, I was able to debug networking issues, what would usually take two engineers like like a whole day, so like two days of engineering da- time down to about like 20 seconds, like that kind of impact on the actual bottom line of the company is massive. And I think, right, observability doesn't matter until it really does. And so like it's maybe not the sexiest or the coolest thing, um, but it's also something that's really important when things do go wrong. And that's when you're really going to want it. Um, and so what EVPF provides you, um, kind of as I was talking about before, is kind of this complete observability. Like everything has to go through the kernel. So you're able mm-hmm. to capture all that information. Like, yes, it's also sometimes a problem because like, as, as you probably know, in observability, it's sometimes finding the, the needle in the haystack. And that's why you don't want to really be looking at, you want to be writing your own EVPF programs for, um, you know, kind of finding this observability. You want to be leveraging higher level tools like like Hubble, like Tetragon that are going to be able to process this information, sift it to you and really pull out the best insights for you. Um, so when people are talking about like, what, what should you think about observability? So the first thing is like, <laughs> have it there before something goes wrong rather than implementing it after something goes wrong. Um, the second part is, there's you can collect more information than is actually useful. So make make sure you either have a tool or like a strategy of figuring out like what's going to be important for you when things do go wrong. And then the last part is kind of like think about is the kind of like operational impact um, that it's going to have on your systems and your processes. I think that's one of the exciting things about like um, EBPF based projects like like Hubble um, is that you can kind of get all this visibility um like observability data in a completely transparent way to the user right ebpf is running to the in the kernel doesn't require any um code changes doesn't really require any sidecar processes it, it's just automatically pulled out as the process are running right they're going to be calling into the kernel you can collect that data from the kernel and then like send it to whatever observability system for the kind of this 
aggregation, um, deduplication of information and pulling out the insights that you actually need to kind of resolve any issues on your system. That deduplication is going to be huge, right? Because yeah. I can imagine with, when you get a lot of data coming in because of a specific error, I can see where you get overwhelmed and being able to dedupe some of that out has got to be very useful. I want to talk one, a little bit more about cloud native and, um, it's not really a new concept, but it, it might be for a lot of legacy companies who moved quickly to the cloud as a response to the pandemic. From your view, what did companies do right? What did they do wrong? And what should engineers tasked with moving to a digital transformation like cloud native look out for when they're starting out their journey? That's a, that's a big question and we Oof. could go all day about it, but I mean... <laughs> I don't want to call out a specific company. I'm, I'm just looking for kind of an idea of concepts of what could we do better? What did we, what did engineers do, right? What could they do better when they had to make that rapid migration because of the state of the world? Okay. So I, I think the first thing is like any kind of like transformation process, like the kind of like tools and the technology is going to be the easiest part. The The people and the processes are going to be the hardest part. You know, getting people to change is probably the hardest thing that you're going to do. And I think this kind of transition, that part of the cloud native is actually kind of the, the hardest part because it is a fundamentally different way of thinking about the world of kind of like doing operations. And you really have to change people's whole mindset about like what they can do and what's possible. And so I think that people and processes part is going to be kind of the hardest part for every single company that we do. Um, the, the tools is, is probably the easiest. Um, I think there's a lot of great solutions out there, like looking at the CNCF like landscape, right? There's, you know, hundreds of different tools that you can choose from. I don't think that's going to be like the hard part. And there's lots of great solutions out there. Um, I think what people should um, kind of like look for going forwards is like, I, I think one of the hot words in technology right now is like the platform. So and I think why people are interested in this is kind of like it's you're creating a foundation where you're able to build like happy golden paths for developers as an easy way to kind of like do that. And so if that's what you want to have, I would think about kind of the, the, these foundational like technologies that are able to kind of like grow with your use cases. Um, and so this is kind of like why I'm excited about Cilium, because it's really this foundational like platform technology. I think like interviewing and talking with a lot of end users of the project, um, one thing that I find like over and over again is like, yeah, they're like, originally I began with just the CNI. I need to provide networking. Like this is just what happened. Oh, and then I realized I needed a second cluster over here because we suddenly had some customers in a different region, right? And so now I had this cool like, cluster mesh feature that allowed me to network multiple ones together. And then we had a problem in part of our network. And I, so I turned on Hubble and then I was able to kind of observe different things that were happening and debug some of our networking issues. And these were additional features in the platform. And so I think as people are like looking for like um, this cloud native transformation, what they should really be looking for is kind of like these like platform technologies that are going to set them up for success, not just today, but like for the next day for the day two operations and really going towards the future too. What you want to be able to do is figure out which which technologies are going to continue to innovate to allow you to kind of have those additional features as, as you need them, right? Like technology is never standing still. What you need is something that is going to grow and change and evolve and innovate at the same pace that your company does. So then when you meet the next set of challenges, you know, whatever is after cloud native, cloud native even is already pretty old at this point. 
um, <laughs> much as we may not like to admit it, there's going to be something afterwards too. And so what technology is going to set you up to meet the challenges of whatever comes next? Yeah, I think that's a very good point about digital transformations. And especially as we start to see these companies shift into the cloud, that the cl moving at the speed of cloud is something that is real. And that technology landscape is constantly changing. And if you don't think two, three, four steps ahead, that's where you get into a problem. Bill, you've worked in the open source community for a while now. How did how have you made that your niche and you and working in the community? What's your favorite part? What's, what what do you like doing? What's your what do you look forward to most about working in the community? Yeah, so my kind of like journey in, into this was almost a complete accident. Um, I actually can't code at all, uh, even to this day. Uh, it's probably like <laughs> my little secret that not a lot of people uh, know about. Um, I'm actually a biochemistry uh, major by, um, uh, by, by training. Um, and how I got into Cloud Native was I was looking for a job and then there's this company that said we're doing like this AI stuff on Kubernetes. I was interested in AI at the time. And I thought Kubernetes was like a cool Greek island I could go vacation at. So I was like, I'm in. Um, but unfortunately, it didn't turn out to be quite that cool. I ended up in this whole like cloud native space. I originally actually began in like sales and business development, kind of like understanding what the relationship is, like building rapport with the customers and how you're trying to solve their like problems um, rather than just like sell them a solution. So I think, I think that was quite fun for me. But what I found was more interesting for me was telling the story about like where technologies are going to go. And what excited me about open source is you could actually change where technologies were going to go. Um, I was researching, I was writing a blog post and I was looking through the Kubernetes documentation. I realized that there was a broken link. And I was like, oh, I can actually fix this myself. And that was like the aha moment. I was like, open source is so cool because you can transform it and make it what you want and make it better uh, for people in the future. And that was kind of my, my first contribution to open source. Kind of since then, I've contributed to a lot of different projects um, along the way. I worked in the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, got really into building community, especially at a massive global scale there. And then now eventually ended up at Isovalent working on eBPF and Silicon communities. And it's it's been a blast. Um, both the communities are growing very quickly. Um, a lot of excitement around the products and the technology. And it's I think that kind of brings me to like, what do I like most about my job is that you're working with all these cool people all around the world and anybody can join and contribute. And it's kind of like, I, I think what I like is that it's a, it's a positive sum game, right? It's like, we're all kind of like working together to make things better. I, I think that's quite fun to be a part of. You bring up community and your work at Isovalent and your, and your work at the, at the um, Cloud Native Foundation or the, um, how is community building different for a company like Isovalent versus the open source community? And what have you, what, what, what's been your biggest takeaways as you've worked between that, building that bridge, right? Between a company that ships open source software based on open source tech and a company that promotes and advocates and evangelizes open source tech. Because the trade-off has always been open source is one way of doing things open source for profit is another way. How have you bridged that gap? What I like about Isovalent is that the founders come from an open source background and mm -hmm. they really understand what open source is and kind of believe in what it is as a technology. And I think that's put me in a quite cool position where actually in my job, I'm focused 100% on 
growing and making the open source communities successful because they know if those communities are successful, they will be able to build a successful business on top of that. And so actually, Isovalent, I'm just focused on the open source communities. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I don't actually have to kind of like play this divide of like, you know, like what's good for the community? What's good for like the company? Like, yes, I want Isovalent to be successful. I like my salary being paid, um, but I am here to make the open source communities successful. And so I think going from CNCF to Isovalent, yes, it was a little bit of a change because like CNCF is kind of the center of this ecosystem. Everyone's always happy to see you. And then coming back into Isovalent, I was like, oh yeah, wow, we have competitors and we have salespeople and kind of like this things. And, you know, there's some people we like and some people we don't like. Um, <laughs> and I mean... It, it, it was a little bit of a change, but it actually wasn't that different because the company actually does believe so much in open source and the open source philosophy. And I, I think that's quite cool to be a part of. And I think that's where you see the successful for-profit open source organizations are the ones who really are focused on giving back as opposed to just ingesting the tech, giving back with the absolute minimum and going on with their business. And you see that longevity happen with the ones who are active in the open source community and growing out the idea of open source as a business use case. Diversity and inclusion is a topic our industry has been working on since the beginning of time, just making sure that we have diverse voices and stuff. From your chair, what do you think we have gotten right? And what do you think we could do better to increase diversity and inclusion? Yes, there's a lot of different like aspects um, to diversity and inclusion. Um, obviously, I think some of the things that like the cloud native community has gotten right is being like an open, welcoming community. But I think even, well, I don't want to say more importantly that because that is kind of like the foundational thing. But on top of that, also providing ways to like ways and resources for like other people to get involved that like traditionally couldn't or didn't have access to it. I, I think this is really big. I think one of I think it was a tweet from like Kelsey Hightower. Um, he was talking about like there. It's one thing to, you know, kind of um, like say you're going to do things. It's other thing to actually sponsor people. And what he meant by sponsorship was giving them like resources, time, mentoring, putting them up, putting people up for different awards, promotions, whatever it else. And I think that's what really makes an impact. And I think there's a lot of great ways that you can do it in the community. Um, so like some things on like the CNCF side. Um, is like providing scholarships to attend KubeCon and other conferences. I, I think that's a super important way. And I know so many people that are scholarship recipients that have gone on to do other great things in the cloud native community. Um, I, I think another great way is through the like mentorship programs. Um, I actually have uh, a mentee working with me right now um, to implement like uh, some different use cases pages on the Cilium website. And it's been an amazing experience to work with them. Um, and it's also cool. Um, he's from Nigeria, but he's living in Rwanda right now. And you know, this is someone who doesn't have access to all the same resources. Um, as um, but it's great to kind of see like the amazing work that he's putting out. It's been an awesome experience for me as a mentor to see like what people from different parts of the globe that I, I've never even been to before can also provide to the community. Um, so I think the important thing is investing into people. Um, always giving people like like the time and the resources so that they can grow on that journey. And I, I kind of know this because I come from like a small town in the Midwest. Um, like most people, I, I would say like didn't, didn't quite make it out of there. <laughs> um, and so I kind of know what it's like to not kind of have those opportunities that other people did. And so for me, it's actually really important to 
like provide opportunities to people that that they may not have it otherwise. And I think that's kind of like the cool thing about open source is what, and what I've seen is that if you show up and, and start contributing, you can start doing that. And so, yeah, providing those resources will is one way to help kind of like bridge this gap that we have right now. You bring a great you bring up a great point about access and availability and getting out of small town. I grew up in rural North Idaho, at, almost near the Canadian border. And so without somebody showing me a computer and getting me into what would become a career, I, I, I wouldn't be here interviewing you and talking about open source community stuff. And I think that's the coolest part. Um, as AI grows, because I know AI is one of your hotspots, <laughs> as AI grows, how is diversity and inclusion going to become more important as we try to build out these AI models? And is there anything that concerns you that we should look at right now to change for those of us that work in this space? Or is there stuff that we should watch out for? Or what, what's your current take on the state of AI from a diversity and inclusion standpoint? So there's a lot of people doing great work on this. Um, so I don't want to kind of like steal the thunder from them, but from mm -hmm. what I have learned, um, I think the I am actually quite concerned because the 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 problem is that AI isn't like kind of like this all-knowing thing. It's trained on a certain set of data. And all of the, our real world world data has all the biases that we currently have, especially towards different types of diversity, right? There's um some people are underrepresented, some people are overrepresented in different data sets that are going to be harmful to them. And without thinking about the data behind some of these decisions, will only perpetuate the things that we already have existing in our society. And so people shouldn't kind of think as AI as this kind of like panacea, like great technology that's only producing good and the right answer. It's actually has all of our human faults and flaws built into it through the data that it uses uh, that's already existing in the world. And so if we don't think of steps to kind of overcome that, we'll just replicate what we already have, which is what we don't want to <laughs> do. Nope. That's, that's a great point. What tips would you give for folks who are listening that want to get into a community or developer relations role? Where should they start? And what does that career trajectory look like from your, from your journey? Yeah. So I would say my journey's probably been about like five or six years now. Like I was saying before, I actually started in sales before. And I, I think that was a great way to kind of like understand what like customers' pain points and problems are um, and also how to approach people um, because you have to be <laughs> doing that a lot in sales. And that's a lot of what community is, is, you know, going out, talking to people, understanding what their problems is and building a relationship with them. Um, I, I think what's made me like most successful kind of like in my like community journey is focusing on things that I'm already using. Um, because I found that when you have an interest in something, it's what makes you most successful. And so um, when I said like my first contribution to open source was fixing this link in this documentation because I was writing a blog about it, right? People ask me like, what open source projects should I start contributing to? And I, I would say, which ones are you using right now? Because you'll have the most success when you're contributing to something you're using because you'll start to find kind of like these problems or these use cases or things that could be improved uh, with things that you're actually using. And so I wouldn't say, like, I mean, be counterintuitively, don't just like, oh, go out and contribute to open source. It's find something that you're actually using and find ways that you can actually improve it. So no. that would be my main advice. That's awesome. As we get closer to wrapping this up, I don't want to keep you all day because I realize it's, it, it, you've got some time, you've got stuff that you need to get into. How did you get into technology? What drives you and what keeps you going? Yeah. So 
I, like I was saying, I was a biochemistry undergrad. Um, I'd worked in the lab for about seven years and I kind of realized, you know, working with real mice was not what I want to do. They kind of bite you. It's, it's not, it's not so nice. And so I was kind of like looking for a transition. And one of the things that I was interested in was kind of like understanding the role that technology was playing in kind of like the scientific process. And so I applied to this place called the Oxford Internet Institute, um, went there to do a master's in social science of the internet. And it was kind of like looking at how technology and society shape each other. And so that's kind of how I first really dove into technology. Um, we like to jokingly call our course kind of like like Internet 101, um, where we learned about kind of like how it works and you know how society plays into it. And that was kind of my first introduction to technology. And it was quite a cool place because we had people from all different backgrounds, like looking at like the internet as their way to view their field. So I was a scientist looking at the internet um, and how it's shaping kind of like the scientific method. And that was kind of my introduction. And then I went off to um, this uh, this first Kubernetes startup and the rest is kind of history. That's deep diving into Kubernetes. I have to applaud you for that because I still have, I, I've been in the DevOps and platform engineering space for 20 years and I still can't figure out Kubernetes fully. So kudos to you. What do you do in your spare time to unwind and just kind of decompress a little bit? Yeah. So uh, one of my favorite cultural principles at um, Isovalent is called the work adventure balance um, because there's a lot of Swiss mountaineers um, in our company. Um, and I'd like to say I identify a lot with that mm -hmm. cultural principle. Um, so when I'm not working, they'll probably find me outside hiking, biking, running, swimming, kind of doing all those uh, different types of outdoor and sporty activities. Um, obviously, there's lots of different people at the company, but I, I think uh, generally we like being outside and being active. And that's uh, really important for me, too. That's really good. I mean, it, I'm an outdoors guy too. And my favorite thing to do is get away from being connected for a long weekend and going up to the mountains and just getting out of here. Um, favorite project that you don't contribute to, but just kind of use in your spare time? Uh, as I don't codes, I don't contribute to any projects in my spare time. Um, yeah, I <laughs> feel bad to say it, but it's the truth. <laughs> no, I think it's, I, I think that that's cool though, that you're honest about it. Right. I think that so many people get hung up on what this industry looks like and forget that we need a diverse set of skills. Um, an example of an elegant or well-run community that people should know more about and become involved in. Oof. I don't know if this is exactly like answering the question, but I, I think it's like something that I really think should be highlighted is, um, a lot of people. I think one of the hard things is like people are like, oh, technology is the hardest. But I was saying like people and processes are, are the hardest. And especially around open source is kind of like the governance around that. And people are, I think, always looking for templates or better ways to do it. Mm -hmm. And Tay Contributor Strategy um, within the CNCF has a lot of great templates and resources for people that are working to understand, improve, and even sometimes just form the governance of their open source project. Um, I know I've used some of their templates and I've also contributed like some templates um, to them. And I'd highly encourage people to check that out if they're trying to improve the like the governments and like the, the community around that project too. That's a great point that I don't think we think enough about in the governance and controls around how we do our job and the tech that we use and how to make it better, especially when it comes to open source and trying to define that standard. 
Well, Bill, I really appreciate your time. Do you have any parting thoughts for us? Anything that we should take away or think about? I realize that's, that's a wide open, loaded question, but I always like to give a few minutes for you to just kind of give us some takes and go from there. Yeah, I'm always happy to meet different people in the community. Um, so if you see me on Twitter, LinkedIn, or at a conference, always feel free to come up, say hi, slide into my DMs, um, ask me a question. I'm happy to meet people in the community and help out where I can. Where can we find you on Twitter or other social media? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter um, at Breakaway Billy. Um, uh, LinkedIn is just uh, Bill Mulligan. And on GitHub, I'm X Mulligan. Perfect. Bill, thank you so much for some time today. I really appreciate it. Um, it's been an insightful conversation and look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Bill. This has been Cloud Control, and you've been listening to our discussion today with Bill Mulligan, community builder at Isovalent and contributor to the Cilium Project. I'm your host, Sean Harris. You can give us feedback on our episodes by commenting and liking the post, following me on Twitter at InkedTater, or dropping an email to cloudcontrolpodcast at protonmail.com. And until next time, we'll see you in the cloud.